You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm Therese Boudreaux, the host of Hidden Figures in History, and today I am interviewing a fellow Hillsdale student, Alba Blanco Padron. Welcome. Thanks so much for joining. Well, thank you for having me. I guess I am a hidden figure in not yet history. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Um, I would not be surprised. There's a lot of terms one could use to describe you. Survivor of communism, um, <laughs> polyglot, incredible conversion story. But if you were to briefly introduce yourself, what would you say about yourself? So like elevator pitch kind of a thing? Yeah, like, Who yeah. are you? Um, I would say that... From the moment I was born, God has been stalking me and giving me very interesting missions. And that nothing that I have done thus far is any of my accomplishment, but him kind of having fun with my life. I love the way of looking at it. It is very humble, but you're still... I try. You know, I had my arrogant face when I was younger. So when I was 14 or so, I thought I was the thing. At 14, I was just like, you know, in Spanish, you would say like, I'm the last Coke in the desert kind of a thing. So Thomas Aquinas, my man, said, uh, to be humble is to live according to the truth. And at the end of the day, the truth is that none of what I have done has been of my own doing. You know, like a priest told me, um, you're not a saint by any stretch of the imagination, but you're in a good path. <laughs> and I remember being like, Darren, I thought I was like venerable material. <laughs> okay. So can you kind of just give a, whatever you want Free to include, yeah, of, yeah. Of your, what your childhood was like in Venezuela, especially with communism. And can you just tell us what that's like? Yeah. Um, I, I think I don't get the full American idea of what's going on because I live in Hillsdale. So there's a very, you know, uh, uniform thought as to <laughs> what it is. But I was born in 2001. 2001 was three years after a big coup occurred in Venezuela. So in 1998, there was a very dramatic and violent coup that happened in Venezuela. So I was born three years after that. And when I was born, we already had Chavez as president. And he was the um, precursor, let's say, of what he called socialism of the 21st century. Yeah, <laughs> as great as its name, you know. And so I was born quite... At the beginning of this, so my early childhood did not really get affected because Venezuela is an extremely wealthy country. And so for the first, I don't know, eight years of the regime, it was very easy to patch up things that were going wrong. Um, I was born into a fourth generation Venezuelan family. And so both my both sets of my grandparents were born in Venezuela, so were my great-grandparents. And so... Um, Venezuelan culture was instantiated in me pretty, pretty clearly. Um, my maternal grandparents especially would take me on road trips every summer to like different parts of the country. And they would say, see, now we've seen, you know, the biggest statue of Mary in the world. Now, when you go other places, you can tell people that you have, you know, gone see it. Or, um, there was a museum that doesn't exist anymore, but it, it showed the history of Venezuela live. And so you went from like indigenous people to the conquer of the Spaniards, so on and so forth. And then with television, you stepped into a television and you perform a little scene from a television scene and whatnot. And so my grandparents were like, see, you got to be proud of all this stuff. And then from the beginning of my childhood, I had a pretty close attachment to what it meant to be from my country. Um, I was not raised in a religious household, so that wasn't part of my story growing up. Um, I went to a, a Catholic school growing up uh, that was Catholic 
In the sense of the teachers were Catholic, um, and it was founded by a Catholic family, but half of the population of the school was Muslim. So I had a very interesting range of people that I was friends with and that I interacted growing up. But this school was kind of rebellious against the government. So we never used government textbooks in my school. In fact, we mostly did not use textbooks. Our teachers would just come up with their lesson plans, and we would do that. Um, and I'm really blessed to have that beginning of my education be like that, because by the time I was in school, government books were already out there, um, and history was being rewritten. There was... <laughs> I hate this. There was a, a Venezuelan comedian about 12 years ago or so that dug out books from the early 2000s that were used in public schools. History books? History books, yeah. And there was a page that, you know, said something like, undefeated win for the president of blah, 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 blah. And so then he looks at it and he's like, man, this looks kind of weird because this baseball team has not won a baseball championship in Venezuela for 30-something years. And um, he looked it up. Turns out that page was pulled out of a meme from like social media. And so the fact that my school did not use government textbooks, I think, was a huge blessing in the sense of like that, that propaganda was not something that got to me. Um, when I was 10 years old, there was pretty heavy protesting in Venezuela. This was the point where electricity outages were becoming a daily thing. Um, the excuse of the government at the time was the, uh, a drought had come. And Venezuela has a very big... Um, how do you call it when you make electricity out of bodies of water? Like, I don't know. Uh, hydropower or something? Yeah. So, Hydro the dams? Yeah. So back in the 80s, we hired the Germans to build us like the biggest hydro plant you could possibly do. And it would basically light up the entire country. This thing was massive. Wow. And so <clears throat> the excuse from the government, which in a country wealthy with oil and that much water, it's kind of impossible. But <laughs> the excuse was that uh, there was a drought and that it was just not enough water to light up the entire country. And so that led to food scarcity. Uh, the one I remember the most was that uh, my aunt had taught me how to make a cake. And I was 11. And man, was I excited to make this cake. So I told my mom, mom, we have everything except butter. She's like, great. When I go grocery shopping, I'm going to get you butter. And then, you know, we, we can make the cake. <clears throat> she went grocery shopping that day. And I don't know how it took her eight hours to find butter because she went to like, I don't know, 10 stores or something like that before she was able to find butter. And she came back and of course she gave it to me and she let me bake the cake or whatever. Um, but later that day she was talking to a relative of mine and she was sobbing about it. Like, can you imagine going to the grocery store to buy butter so that your daughter can make a cake and have to spend nine hours doing that. So with that, the protest started. And at least in my town, there was barbed wire in every street corner. So I couldn't go to school. I was 11 years old. So this is 2010. There wasn't Zoom. Forget about Skype, okay? And so my teachers would email our worksheets to our parents. My mom would print it at her job and then bring it home so that we could do our homework. And this was about a month of not being able to go to school. So I think that's one of the episodes that made my mom say, I, I cannot, I cannot stay here. I just have one question. So with the electricity outages and the food shortages, 
Was that a way of the, the Venezuelan government retaliating, basically? Um, I think yes and no. So I think part of it was a way of testing the waters as to see how people would react. And then how they killed people in the protests was the reaction. So at least in the capital, I know they killed a lot of people. And one of the saddest episodes was the youth orchestra in Venezuela. It's quite notable. They have been all over the world, but uh, they're part of a, a system that was in Venezuela where they started at three years old. And by the time they were 18, they had been playing for 15 years. Oh, and wow. so um, these people are very talented. And so a group of them, I'm guessing around 16, 17 years old, were protesting and the police broke all their instruments. Violins, oboes, clarinets, you name it. They were all broken. And any musicians that may listen to this will be like, ah, what? They're, yeah. And so, like, they broke all of their instruments. And that was such a base thing to do. Like, you know, especially for, for minors. Anyway, and so I think after all this, <laughs> my mom was pretty convinced that there was nothing there that she could do to help us. And so at the end of that year, um, my mom found a job in the Dominican Republic. And I left two months after she did with my brother and like my best friend left about a year later and more people left and so but we left on the beginning side of the Venezuelan exile kind of a thing and we moved to the Dominican Republic which is not a common place for people to move out of uh, from Venezuela so many people have gone to Colombia or Peru or Ecuador Argentina kind of things where you can drive to um, although it can take days to get there but anyway like mm -hmm. Um, but we moved to the Dominican Republic, um, and I think that was best for us because they have a similar culture in the sense of, like, hospitality is kind of similar. Venezuela and the DR had a lot of American influence at some point. Yeah. The DR more, m more than Venezuela because, sad news, you guys invaded twice. Um, <laughs> whoops. Um, <laughs> but Venezuela had a lot of American influence because of the oil industry. So Venezuelan companies would hire Americans for XYZ purposes. And they would say, hey, just train our people and we'll pay for your housing while you're here and whatnot. And so both of them have American influence. Both of them like baseball, which I think shows a lot about the culture. Yeah. I, <laughs> Talk to a few Americans that like baseball, they feel like home. Anyway, <laughs> so we moved there, um, and I moved to a different school, different country, same language, but I struggled to understand them for, like, six months. Like, the Spanish they speak is so fast, and they have so many idioms and, like, colloquialisms that I had no idea about. I'm like, what are you saying? <laughs> um, but the DR is a very poor country. Um, their education system is pretty bad. And they have uh, about 40% of the population. It is, is something called functional illiteracy. And that is when you read something and you can tell me the words that are written on the paper. But then if I ask you, hey, what does that mean? You cannot answer. So people would be able to read signs. And then you're like, what does the sign say? And people are like, uh, I don't know. Because of the education system is so bad. Um, so my mom started working there. I was in a new school trying to you know, figure out my life at 14. But my brother had it hard, too. He was um, nine. And so he, he like, his transition, in a way, school-wise, was easier because this is the time where kids start being taught about their country and, like, history. So he didn't have that going on. On my case, I, I had missed all the years of history that you get from the time you're seven or eight to the time you're 13. Mm. So that was a lot of time of, like, making up. 
But I realized that I was very privileged with the education I had in Venezuela because I was about two years ahead in the curriculum. So the, yeah. the math I was doing in eighth grade when I was in the DR, and they had lowered me a grade because they weren't sure I knew um, what, what I needed to know. So the math I was doing in eighth grade in the DR was the math I was taught in Venezuela in fifth grade. So um, <laughs> that was kind of a blessing in disguise. I was kind of bored in my classes, but also it gave me time to, to adapt. And so it was a very different type of school. So like my previous school was more on the secular side. This school had daily prayer and teachers were more, more religious, but teachers were anything from evangelical to practicing Catholics. But generally speaking, it's a bit more of a Christian culture than Venezuelan was because in Venezuela, they had a lot of like, you're better than this. You don't need Christianity to tell you what to do, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. Love Mary. That's fine. But you don't need Christianity to tell you what to do. And so in the DR, they have a more Christian culture in that sense of people, generally speaking, go to church, whether Protestant or Catholic. And so it was a shock for my, you know, last Coke in the desert atheist self. I'm like, man, (laughs) man, these people. And so my next year in that school was kind of rough and turbulent, so I had, I had developed a, a friend group, and I was going on exchange the following year because of a program that I, that I was part of, so it was kind of like a year where I was preparing to go, and <laughs> so this is about 15 years old, and so I got heavily bullied at this school by a group of people that just didn't know any better because teenagers don't know what they're doing with their life. Um, but at that time, I had really good teachers that supported me through that. Um, one of them has passed away already. You know, I'm just really thankful that I had them because I don't think any of my other teachers would have been that supportive of me at the time. Just, you know, transitioning into a new country and a new culture and new friends and suddenly having the problem of being bullied. Like, there's, it was a lot of things at the time. Um, my mom lost her job in the meantime, which puts a put us in a very complicated um, economic situation. We had to move from an apartment where my brother and I were sharing a room to one where we were all sharing a room and a bathroom. Um, The joke we had at the time was that we could make coffee, take a shower, and brush our teeth at the same time. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. That's what my brother and I would say in the morning, at least. And so... We were all sharing a room, and I had to walk about three miles to and from school. Um, my brother only did it on Fridays when he would come back to, to home earlier. And so it was a hard time. Just my mom was trying to make ends meet, and that was a very sad Christmas. So my family has a lot of Christmas traditions and New Year's traditions, which are not really a thing in the States. But New Year's is, I think, in my family at least, a bigger deal than Christmas. And so that New Year's, it was like, man, <laughs> we have enough money to watch a movie. Um, it was just a hard year, year in general. And so school was hard. Finances were hard. My family went into a lot of debt. And so for some reason, the year after, when I turned 16 years old, I went on exchange for a year to Italy. How this happened and how everything worked out it's a miracle to my knowledge. Like, it makes zero sense as to how the heck I got on a plane and flew to the other side of the world. All my teachers were really supportive. I, I was like, this was something that I wanted to do since I was eight years old. So since I was eight years old, I'm like, I want to be an exchange student. Did I know what that meant? No. I just wanted to do it. <laughs> and so 
it all kind of worked out so that that would happen. And I remember filling out like, I don't know, hours and hours and hours of paperwork to be able to like do this. And it was like, mom, they're asking for your consent. And then she'll text me back like, just sign it. (laughs) 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 We love the third world where these things can happen. (laughs) Anyway, and so by the time I was 16 years old, I got on a plane and I went on an exchange to Italy. And I, for the first time, was living in like a house with an intact family that loved me. Whoa. <laughs> and, and this so is you not, stay with the family there. Yeah. So this is not to bash on my family or anything, but uh, my parents are divorced. And so living in like your think American dream kind of family, like mom and dad, and they all love their kids or whatever, was not something that I had the, the joy of experiencing. And so when I moved to Italy... <laughs> 18 hours of flying and then a four-hour drive home man (laughs) so my host parents let me sleep for 17 hours and the next morning I got up well actually afternoon I got up and (laughs) they sat me down and they had a bunch of things that they had to tell me as part of the exchange program like this is a family and you should behave kind of a thing but they decided to just tell me like hey call us mom and dad we wanted more kids but we're older, so we cannot have, in, have them ourselves. So we just got you. So call us mom and dad. Here are the rules of the house. Um, we go to mass on Sundays, and we eat lunch together on Sundays. So no plans on Sundays. Uh, if you ever need a ride, we'll give you a ride. We'll show you where your school is. Um, best of luck. And so they really took me under their wing. They sent me off for, like, volunteer hours told hours, if you will. They're <laughs> like, yeah, Saturday you're going to play with kids so the parents can go to church. I'm like, all right. Um, <laughs> Thursdays is youth group. You have to go. I'm like, all right, cool. Um, but having that family life really was a healing experience for me after all the stuff that I had gone through, just being like, well, these people love me. Long story short, I became Catholic that year. Yay. And so flew back home. My mom said, man, I sent you away normal. You came back Catholic. Um, (laughs) um, and I graduated, um, high school at 18 years old. So 2019 after coming back from my exchange year, which I had never been happier, man, finishing high school was like, yes, I'm out of here. I was not the kind of person that loved high school. I was just like counting the minutes to freedom. Uh, and so after that, I started working full time, worked full time as a nanny, translator and so I was back in the DR I was working full-time my dream was always to go to college okay so I wanted to teach since I'm three my pastime when I was little I had a little whiteboard and I would put it outside in my parents patio and I would call the dog over and I would make it sit down (laughs) and I will teach him what I learned that day at school and so I would sometimes be like this is an M it makes mm." And then the dog wouldn't answer me. And I would go to my grandpa and I would cry because the dog was not answering me when I said to repeat after me. Um, And then he would say, because dogs don't speak. And I would answer, but Clifford does. Anyway. (laughs) And so I've always wanted to teach. And teaching is one of those things that you have to go to school for. And so this whole working full time was really hard on me. I really wanted to go to school. But, you know. Some things work out the way they do, and I just could not afford to go to school. And the DR uh, university is extremely expensive. There's no nearly as much funding for education in the DR. And if you're a foreigner, you have to pay a foreign 
foreigner's tax, if you will, on education. That would just make it impossible for me to afford it. And And how is, if you don't mind me asking, how is inflation in the DR compared to Venezuela? And was that something as well? Well, I don't have the exact numbers. Venezuela has... Uh, hyperinflation. So something costs two today and tomorrow is 200. Um, Even though Venezuela is naturally wealthy because mm-hmm. of the socialist government. Well, yeah, if you print more money and, you know, you let you get yourself in debt, plus you let countries borrow millions of dollars out of you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> In fact, Venezuela is like, and I hate saying this, but it's a good analogy. So imagine that you're like walking down the street and you see a guy that's kind of disheveled, but he tells you, I'm super rich. Uh, And you're like, yeah, right. Um, And the guy's actually super rich. It's just a bunch of people owe him money. (laughs) He actually is super rich. He just doesn't have the money in his pocket just yet. That's kind of what Venezuela's situation is with the socialist government. And so... Hyperinflation is pretty bad. The the DR has a relatively healthy in inflation. They had a, a wacky government at some point while I was living there, but it's it's back on its feet. So they live out of tourism mainly, but it's a very poor country. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my my brother was in one of the poorer sites of the country not too long ago, and, and it's pretty it's pretty sad. Um, a lot of illiteracy, a lot of abandoned children, orphans. Um, Lack of healthcare. It, it it's pretty bad. Like if you go as a tourist, it's a wonderful country. Go. Um, they need you to go. <laughs> no, really. Uh, but if you if you will go to live there, it is very expensive for the little you get. And so, it's very different from the states in that sense. Like, it is not a country where you go to like figure out your life. Um, it's a country where you're either building a hotel and getting rich, or you're making ends meet. It's not like. Um, it's a horrible life. Like my mom and my brother still live there, but it's also not the American dream where you're going to go make it kind of a thing. Like my mom has been a resident there for nine years and we don't have a house. We cannot afford a house. So, um, so education in the DR was Mm -mm. off the table at that point. You were 18 and working. Yeah. And so, um, because I am Venezuelan, I had to get paperwork done, um, in March of 2020, Uh, And so in March of 2020, I flew back to my country for the first time in forever. Um, Yeah, six years at that point. So for the first time I go back to my country, I did have things to figure out, like driver's licenses and that sort of thing. Um, My grandpa was turning 65, so that was another uh, big, you know, incentive for me to actually be there. My grandpa is very special for me. And so I went there and my original plan was to be there for eight days. And I ended up there for eight months. And so my first week there, it was it was nice. I had not seen part of my family for six years. My grandparents were one of them. Um, my extended family as well that I used to live within a two-minute radius from. And so it was nice. But uh, I could tell week one that things were really, really hard. And so the day before I left, the government announced that all the borders were closed. No flights are going out or into Venezuela until further notice. And so um, that was really hard for me. Well, it wasn't hard the first time because I thought, man, this is going to be like a 15-day thing. They've done this before. You know, they they have closed the borders before. So I was like, it it won't be that bad, right? And so anyway, (laughs) uh, the first week went by. um, Six times a day, we would have electricity outages that would happen um and then i realized it was a weekly thing and so every week we would have seven to eight hours without electricity a day um one day uh 
the electricity went out. And I'm like, okay, well, this happens here every day. Um, but it lasted for three days. My mom couldn't contact me. Um, it was really scary. I'm like, man, I, what, what am I going to do? And so when it came back, my mom was so worried for me. She's like, I wish I could get you out of there. I'm like, I don't <laughs> I wish you could. Um, running water was also a problem. So um, my dad's family is really poor. And my grandma, who's just turned 78 at the time, had to carry water to be able to cook or wash her dishes or take a bath. Like, can you imagine a 75-year-old woman having to carry gallons of water to be able to do all of this? It was outrageous. But then my mom's side of the family, their house received running water twice a week. So um, taking a shower was a laborious endeavor. Like, you finished taking a shower, you were more dirty than you were before. So um, taking a shower was a problem. Electricity was a problem. I also had no money, mind you, um, because um, a relative of mine has a bakery that I was working for in the middle of the night, so like 3 a.m. baking brownies kind of a thing. Um, and I was making about a dollar a month, and I didn't have like a formal salary. That's a not dollar a month. More or less, yeah. And things in, the, in Venezuela are the same price as they are yeah. in the U.S., basically, or more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I was making no money. And so the relative I was working for, God bless her, she, she's wonderful, but she couldn't pay me, okay? Like, she could take me out and say, do you need shampoo? I will buy it for you. But she couldn't pay me. And so, um, and I was doing it mainly to have something to do. Um, my, my uncle had a bin of books that I read the entire thing. But in there, he had a memoir from the Holocaust written by an Italian Jew, which is quite a rare thing to read. Um, his name, the name of the author is Primo Levi. And he wrote what is called the Auschwitz Triology. And uh, that, was, that book was sad. It's his experience from the Holocaust told as he was living it. So if people were speaking in Russian around him, he wrote it in Russian. And so you are just as disoriented as he is as mm. he's living this whole thing. And so it's a really good book. It's depressing. And the one that I read right after that is called Without You, There Is No Us. And that is a person that infiltrated North Korea and as a missionary and basically wrote what she saw. And inside that book, there's a section about unwritten rules that she found out about in North Korea. And as I was reading it, I'm like, darn it, I'm here. <laughs> so like the rules are not the same, of course, but there are unwritten rules. So mm -hmm. something like um, you do not complain about the state of the country or um, do not brag about leaving the country. So one of the things is that my grandma would go around parading me to her like friends or we would like, she needed to go get something from the store. She would want to talk to the lady and say like, look, my wonderful granddaughter. Um, <laughs> and so she would tell them like, oh, well, she lives in the Dominican Republic now. And people would answer wild things like, what? Did you not have the willingness to stay in your country and work for it? People would say things like, well, you still should be proud that you're from here. I'm like... I never said I was not, you know? And so a lot of propaganda happens, and the propaganda is pretty wild. So I would drive around. Mind you, there was a gasoline shortage, so the fact that I could drive was a huge privilege. But I would drive to my grandma's house from my other grandma's house, um, 
and there would be posters saying, we have never been better. It is what it is. Um, and those are slogans from the government that it are It is what it is. It is what it is, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, they're everywhere. Um, and another one is where two can eat, three can also eat. Um, it's a way of saying, like, there's enough food for everyone. And so it is posted everywhere. Like, we've never been better. This is the best country on earth. It is what it is. There's enough food for everyone. And it's everywhere. And people just don't notice because they're so desensitized to it. Just remember just taking such a toll on me. I'm like, this is all not true. And it's everywhere. And I would tell my family, like, you know, like, uncle, you've, really? We've never been better? <laughs> like, you were alive in the 70s, okay? Like, <laughs> you remember that. And you'd be like, well, you know, it's just a matter of speaking. And so, and it's on TV, and it's... So people believe that. It wasn't just a, just the government trying to... Like, well, there were I don't know people if people who... believe it. I just think they don't see a problem with it. Hmm. And so the propaganda was a problem. And with all that previously mentioned, I was just not having a good time. I was sick all the time. I couldn't sleep. Um, I had terrible nightmares all the time. And most of them were about my family dying. I'm like, what if my mom dies? There's no way of me getting out of here. And so eight months passed by. All churches were closed. But, you know, eventually my grandpa and I managed to go to an underground church service, which actually relatively cool. Pros to whatever church is doing this. St. Anthony Parish in my city in Venezuela. Way to go. Um, but, like, we managed to go. And the church was locked when we were inside because people were not supposed to this to know that this was happening. My grandpa found his faith after 40 years or something during this time. And so, if anything, that was worth the entire trip. The first time I tried to get out of the country... Um, and this was when? November of 20... Yeah, November of 2020. And so, the first time I tried to get out of the country, I had gotten a, quote, humanitarian plane ticket that costed me um, something around $900 for a hour and a half plane ride. And so um, the first time I tried to get out of the country, um, I had my documents with me. My mom is a resident of the DR, which means that I'm a resident in the DR, where at least I was at the time because I had just turned 18 and I have like a grace year for being a minor. And so I stood outside of the airport because they wouldn't let you inside for eight hours on my feet. Um, walked inside of the airport, went through the first post, I guess, of um, document control, went through the second one, and on the third one, they said, you cannot leave the country today. I asked why, and the reason was, because you don't have an American visa on your passport. You're looking at me like, what? (laughs) 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 And that is literally the face I had. I'm like, what? I'm not going to America. And I was trying to tell um, this lady, I was like, I, I'm not going to the United States. I live in the Dominican Republic. I am literally on a flight done by the Dominican embassy to get residents to the country. Like, what are you talking about? And she just said, well, they require an American visa for you to go into the country so you cannot leave. And I'm like, I, that's not true. The Dominican um, ambassador was in the, in the airport at the time. Not even he could get me out of the country. Um, And so this lady called the military to escort me out of the airport. And so I don't know how many guys were there. I don't remember clearly. 
I didn't, my phone didn't work. And so just put yourself in there. Like, okay, like four military guys possibly armed, they could kill you. Um, walk me out of the airport and the airport is next to the highway. And then they walked away. And I felt like I was going to die. Like at this point, I had prayed for death more than once. But um, at that point, I was like, I'm never making it out of here. And my family that had driven me to the airport had left. So like there wasn't anyone there. And I, I prayed. I'm like, Lord, <laughs> I, I need like somewhere to stay. Like I cannot stay here. For some reason, they came back to the airport and found me. And they're like, what's wrong? And so they drove me back. And I was in such a state of shock. Like if my nightmares were bad up until this point, they got worse. Two weeks later, I had to buy another humanitarian flight. I had to get... A lot of documentation that for people that helped me safety and my own, I cannot, you know, disclose much about it. But basically, I got enough documentation to be able to get out of the country. And so I told you, like, you had to stand on your feet for hours on end, get through several points of um, document check. Um, inside the airport, there's no water. Bathrooms don't work and there's no food. There were children on that flight. There were old people in this flight. I'm talking like 70s and 80s. None of them could sit. Two-year-olds could not sit because they make all the flights be anywhere between five and eight hours of delay. Why? Because. And so it was such a depressing day. Um, people on the flight were being interrogated. Um, and we were just patted down like terrorists. So the first time I got patted down, it was more of like what you would have in the States, just making sure you're not carrying anything in your person, and it got progressively worse. And at around 1 a.m., when they allowed us to get on the plane that was there since like 2 p.m., um, and we could see it, um, when we walked by, they had male guards for everyone just doing a very in-depth, if you will, patting of people. Really? It has not been enough that you have done this 12 times before we get out of the country? And so I had no faith of getting out of the country until the, the plane left. Like, I really had no faith I was going to get out of there. I'm like, this, you know, they're going to make up something. Um, and so I got out of the country, and I think it is just a miracle. I have no way of expressing how hard it was to get out of the country um, and how difficult it was for my family to see all the shenanigans go down. So for my grandparents, it was really hard. Uh, they could tell I was having a hard time. They were used to it, but they knew I was not. And my, my mom and my brother on the other side of, of the ocean, they were like really concerned. <laughs> so when I made it back, it was, it was just brutal recovery from this whole thing. Like, um, vitamin deficiencies, heavy metal poisoning. Oh my gosh. Um, PTSD, other things, and so on and so forth. But um, I had to start working again, so I started working as a translator. Um, but and how many languages did you know at this point? I knew Spanish, English, Italian. Um, I had taken some German, but not fluent and vague remembrance of high school French, but... I'm not fluent in German or French, <laughs> but I knew enough that my English is good. And so I was able to translate English to Spanish and Spanish to English for the American government while I was living in, um, in the DR. So I had a good job. Um, it didn't pay amazing, but it was enough to help my mom pay for my brother's high school and to pay for things I needed and I, in my mind to save for college. But I was not really 
able to do that. Um, I work on that for a year. I was like, you know, I'll do this job. It's such a hard job. I'm not a fan, but it's always better than what I had just gone through. Mm -hmm. um, during this time, I, I lost a couple scholarships just because I couldn't travel right. out of Venezuela and whatever. So my plans of college were nowhere to be found. Um, and then a year after, a year and a half after working as a translator, um, I was able to translate trials and, you know, and, and legal procedures. So I was working with a particular state, so okay. nothing on the federal lower, but one particular state that worked a lot with like CP, CPS courts, so child protective services, adult protective services, that sort of thing. It's probably pretty dark. Uh, yeah, uh, custody battles, um, a lot of those. Um, medical procedures as well. And so medical procedures were definitely hard. Um, legal uh, translations had their own difficulties because... Um, it's just a lot of things that are established and must be said in one way or the other. Plus, if you're dealing with children and, uh, and disabled people, it tends to get pretty heated. Yeah. Well, and so a year and a half after doing this, I was volunteering with a ministry called the John Paul II Project. They're marvelous. And I quit my job to go and live with them and just give my time to this ministry. I was doing their website, okay? So they needed someone to do their website, so I didn't need to be anywhere to do this. Um, I can do pretty decent web design, and I know how to build a website. So I was like, you know, I don't have any money to give to my church, but I have time. Like, little of it, but time. And so I was just running their website at some point, and I talked to the founders, and at some point they were like, you know, why don't you move with us and, you know, help us from here? I'm like you know, that's actually a cool idea. But no, um, <laughs> last time I traveled didn't go well. And so I wish not. And they're like, okay, well, just pray about it. And I prayed about it. And I was like, really? <laughs> I have a job now. Um, and so I quit my job and then told my mom about it. She's like, what? <laughs> You're going where? Where is Michigan? Anyway, and so um, I quit my job on July and I was on a plane in August 20th. So, of 2021? Yeah, 2021. And so I, it was just quick turning, if you will. So like I quit my job one week, had a plane ticket that I didn't pay for, and <laughs> got on the plane and moved to their house. Um, I was living on their basement and I was doing kind of what I was doing before and then a lot of like printing things and mailing things, like very not, you know, glamorous but stuff that needs to get done um i also had a lot of time to fill so i volunteered with a local church um i like showed up and told the the priest i'm like hey you need help with stuff <laughs> and he's like yes <laughs> who are you <laughs> i'm like well and so i told him about it i'm like i quit my job and i have time to fill so you know if you need help just let me know and he just sent me to the religious education department and they were like yes we need people to do craft for children's ministry i'm like I, I got you. And then one lady was like, oh, yeah, we also need to fill out the baptismal books because I haven't filled them out in like six months. And I'm like, well, that's a problem. <laughs> so um, three times a week, I was filling out baptismal books. I was cutting stars for eight hours in a row, um, helping out with catechism, talking to kids about Jesus. And then on the weekends with my ministry, I was going to study abroad affairs and talking to people about Jesus visiting colleges, doing retreats. It was a very full schedule all in all, but it was good. 
Um, this is the priest that I told, like, Father, I thought it was, like, venerable material. <laughs> it's like, you're not a saint by any stretch of the imagination, but you're doing well. Um, and so uh, he he was great. He was a great pastor. And so I, that's all I did. My mom, at some point, had doubts. And she was like, how on earth are you going to go to college, child? You don't have a job. You're working for free. <laughs> I had a stipend as a volunteer. Um, but I basically told them, not to give it to me so that I couldn't spend it. And so I really had no money. Um, and, and so my mom's like, what are you doing? Like, you want to go to college? You're working in this? Like, what on earth? And I'm like, mom, you know, I want to do whatever God wants to do. And my mom's not a believer. So she said, do you want God to do whatever it wants with you? And so I said, yeah, I want him to do whatever he wants with me. And I hung up the phone. <laughs> And then I felt super guilty about it. So I called the priest. And I'm like, yo. <laughs> so I told him the story. I told him what happened. And he said, Alba, you're so good. It's fine. You are so fine. It's okay. Good job. Well job. Good job. <laughs> well done. And I was like, okay, cool. And so I kept on going. Uh, this is about the time where I heard about Hillsdale. Because people in these retreats... Um, would tell me about Hillsdale. And so people kept telling me, like, oh, you should go to Hillsdale, you know? You should talk to people in Hillsdale. You've scared communism twice. They will love you. <laughs> That's literally what someone told me. Um, I'm not going to rat them out. He doesn't need to be ratted out. Anyway, and so... I mean, is he wrong, though? <laughs> he's not. <laughs> I just don't know if he needs the cloud. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, and so, uh, yeah, so a lot of people were telling me about Hillsdale. So I looked into it, never heard about it before, uh, but the application was free and, and still is free to apply to Hillsdale. Thank you. Um, and so my poor self was able to apply because I didn't have to pay a, a fee. And so um, I filled out my application. I wrote an essay and I basically took the essay prompt. I still remember what it was. My essay prompt was, what is good character and how do you achieve it? And I basically said, well, good character is not a thing. And I, and I was like, I'm going to run with this. Good character is not a thing. It is the consequence of, you know, pursuing sainthood. And so I just, I just ran with it. I'm like, I'm going to take this prompt, throw it down the drain, and just go. Um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> which is technically what I like to do the most in essays. If I can throw a prompt down the drain, I will. And so I wrote my essay. I got a proof for it. Um, a couple of people said, like, man, it sounds like you're preaching to them. I'm like, great. Um, <laughs> so I submitted that. And I, someone from my church drove me here. She had a friend here. She's a graduate. And so um, I visited campus basically because Father told me and my uh, missionary people told me to. And so I was like, you know, sure. So I visited campus, went on a tour, looked around Hillsdale, thought, man, this is too nice. I don't think I'm going to make the cut. Um, but I did my interview and, and it went really well. But I still, I was like, I, I had been accept, accepted to, what, six colleges at this point. Um, I had gotten scholarships for every single one of these schools. I just couldn't make it. So I was like, kind of discouraged, to be honest, in the sense of like, well, you know, I may get admitted, but I also, I don't think I'm going to be able to pay for this. And right. so I snuck into the church now that I know the schedule of St. Anthony's. I like opened the door. I'm like, oh, it's unlocked. Great. <laughs> so, and I walked in. But it was way after hours. And I really don't know why it was unlocked. But thanks be to God. And so I knelt down and I prayed. Um, and I basically told Jesus, hey, you know, I've been praying about this thing of going to college for like three years now. Um, if you don't want me to go to college, that's fine. I'll get over myself. Like, 
<laughs> it feels like I'm washing my mouth with soap, but here we go. I surrender. Anyway, and so, um, and so that's basically what I said. But then I said something around, uh, but Hillsdale's pretty nice. So if you want me to come here, you know, <laughs> I said a couple Hail Marys and got out of there. Um, and I'm very stubborn, so I never prayed about it again. I'm like, I kept going, whatever. And later then, in March of 2022, I got a call. And it was like, you're accepted. I'm like, awesome, great, uh, cool. Um, but then I was like, the, the excitement kind of wore off. I'm like, I, I cannot pay for health sales, you know. And so I got an email from the financial aid office, and it was an Excel spreadsheet. And basically what it meant is that my scholarship was good enough for me to be here if I had a job and I was able to work here um, during the academic year. And so I was like, oh, my word. And that's when I actually got excited. OK, so like I wasn't excited about being accepted. I was excited about the fact that it was actually happening. Like I was actually going to college. I think I ran down the hallway and opened the door without knocking. And they were like, yo, you need to knock. I'm like, hold on. I just got Hillsdale. Scotch. Ah. And so, um, yeah. And uh, after that, I finished my time with the John Paul II project. Went back to the DR to do mounds of paperwork for my American visa. Um, I got the American visa after toil, tears, and sweat. You do an interview and they ask you questions like... Um, my favorite one is, do you have any ties to a terrorist organization, whether on your own or your family members? I'm like, what? <laughs> and this is like the entry form for Thanks. everybody. And so it's like... What, what do they expect? Like, yes. I, I don't <laughs> know. But so I filled out all these forms, did an interview. And in the interview, I was so nervous about the interview. And I walked over to the guy that was interviewing me. And he's like, where are you going for school? And I said, uh, Hillsdale College. And he goes that in michigan i'm like yeah he goes well i'm sorry <laughs> he goes it's really cold over there i'm like okay cool um but i got the american visa and then i realized i did not have a plane ticket and it was july and i was supposed to be here on august 20th so i emailed he'll still again and i was like hey um i have my visa but i don't have a plane ticket and i don't really know how i'm gonna make it to hillsdale but, you know, um, I will try my best. Pray for me. Um, and I have no idea how I got a plane ticket. Like, I think the Lord just erased the memory of the amount of stress I went through. But I had a plane ticket and I made it to Hillsdale and now I'm here. Um, moving to the States, I found a lot of interesting opinions where it comes to where I'm from and whatnot because people have not necessarily experienced well they have not experienced communism firsthand but definitely have not experienced the sort of difficulties I went through while I was there and so um sometimes it's hard to convey the depth of suffering that people are going through and the news doesn't make it justice like if you watch any news channel any youtube channel like nothing is gonna be fair to the human condition that I saw while I was there like the poverty, the malnutrition, the social fabric just completely deteriorated, the lack of education. Like I grew up in a great education system. It doesn't exist anymore. Um, <clears throat> it's just there is no news channel that can convey the depths of human suffering happening in my country. And I do not think I will see it get better in my lifetime, um, nor do I think I will ever know for sure, the atrocities committed against human rights 
in, in Venezuela. Um, <clears throat> dictatorships in South America, for people that don't know, have a horrible track record of human rights violations. <clears throat> Let's just say South Americans do dictatorship very, very violently. Um, and so I don't think Venezuela is any better. I have many opinions as to the amount of human rights violations in Venezuela. I'm sure there's plenty of people that have just disappeared. I am more than sure there's been hundreds of thousands of people dead. And so needless to say, I cannot go back after saying all this. <laughs> Um, but it's fine. I want to become an American now. So that's, that's great. Um, but it's just, it is a very sad thing and I don't think anyone can see it in like a news channel or something. Okay. Yeah. Is there any movement or organization? No, 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 like definitely not. Um, if people have seen the news and they have seen like one or two guys go in and out and be like, Oh, this one guy seems to be doing something against the Venezuelan government. I have no faith in this man. Okay. I'm very biblical like that. Put no faith in princess or something. <laughs> no, but, um, people in Venezuela are dispirited and have no passion because they have been broken down to the point where they have no passion left because if you have to survive, guess what you don't care about? the guy in the, the equivalent of the White House. Right. It's pink in Venezuela, so you know. Um, but the people really have no time to care about this sort of thing, and all the young people have left. Yeah. Like, if you have to take a shower or overthrow the government, what are you going to do? And so um, politicians in Venezuela are extremely corrupt, and I have no faith in any of them. But sadly, the people also have, have no power. We also don't have guns, so... <clears throat> God bless America. <laughs> we don't have guns. And so people really have no way of defending themselves. Right. Um, this will probably become a Cuba kind of situation. Sure. The length to which they go to to remain in power, um, the lack of elections, the fake Congress. It, it looks a lot like Cuba. And so I don't think I will see the end of it in my lifetime, nor can I go back. So you said that you wanted to teach what is your what is your dream to do after hillsdale being right. in the states hear me out i have two dreams all right dream number one is to become an american and take a flight to like canada <clears throat> and then take a flight back and have the immigration guy like you know stand by passport and say welcome home that's dream number one and then the other one is that i want to teach at a college level the reason why i want to teach uh philosophy and religion specifically at the college level is because one of my great patrons is Pope John Paul II. Pope John Paul II loved young people. He had something that young people don't have today, which is purpose and hope. And the only way I have seen people's eyes light up is when they discover that sort of thing. And although you can teach purpose and hope, teaching math or English and whatnot, I happen to be okay at philosophy and relatively okay <laughs> at religion. So um, those are the two things that I want to teach. But also they teach you how to think. And if you are able to think properly, encountering purpose and meaning in God is way easier. And so I want to teach those subjects. But am I going to be like John Paul II? No. <laughs> He's a different brand. Um, but my hope is that by teaching, if one person comes to believe that they have a life in which they can be a saint right now, that Christ loves them and goes on to do something cool, cooler than I could ever be, then my time is fulfilled. This has been an interview with Alba Blanco Padron on 101.7 FM, telling her story of how she escaped communism twice and how she ended up as a Hillsdale College student. 
I'm your host, Therese Boudreau, and this is Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM.